The Shinnecock appear to have been the largest, most powerful Indian group on Long Island, and one of the earliest known to the first European explorers and traders. The Shinnecock are one of the only two groups mentioned by de Razier in 1627, who described East Point as, in some places it is from three to four miles broad, and it has several creeks and bays, where many savages dwell who support themselves by planting maize and making siwan, wampum, and who are called Suinox and Sunacox. Wassenaer noted in 1621-1632 that Peter Berenson was well acquainted with all the neighboring tribes of Indians. He traded not only with the Sikinans, who to whom all tribes on the northern coast were tributary, but also with the Sunacox, Wapanox, Maquays, and Mikans. He visited all these Indians in shallops, a small boat, and traded with them for furs and peltries in great friendship. Only three Indian groups, Wapingers, Mohawk, Mohicans, are mentioned, besides what must have been a notable group, the Shinnecock. Perhaps their role, often noted in early histories as minters of wampum, the colonial currency, gave them this notoriety. This is a revisionist history of the Native American colonial interface on Long Island. Such a critical review of Long Island's historical documentation is long overdue. We now have a current ethno-history for Long Island comparable to Jennings, interpretation for the New World, and Trent's review of Indian relations in New England. Strong impressively documents the predetermined sequential steps taken by the Southampton proprietors, repeated by other early town governments on Long Island, to secure title to Indian lands and to control the Indian population. It is not a story that jibes with most historical accounts that the Long Island settlers came for religious freedom, that the early plantations were pure democracies, and that the Indians were peaceable because of fair and equitable treatment. The communalism of Indian groups was closer to being pure democracy. Their lifestyle expressed the tenets of Christianity more than that of the Puritans. Strong's analysis of colonial documents indicates that the invasion of America took place on Long Island and that the paranoia of Indians about loss of their land is justified. This fresh view of the invasion of Long Island reveals that Indian settler relations, at least for the Shinnecock, were not so peaceful as is usually reported. But the early burning of some Southampton houses as a protest by the Shinnecock led to the usual scenario. Their land was sold to colonists for pittance while they were entertained with gallons of rum. Large tracts of their land were taken to satisfy a huge fine levied for the house burning. 
They were forbidden access to their usual subsistence of gathering ground nuts, firing the woods for browse for the deer, or hunting and trapping in what were now colonists' fields. They were fined if colonial cattle broke legs, falling into Indian cellar holes, fined for not keeping fences up to keep colonial cattle out of Indian fields, and ordered to kill all their dogs. This, plus steady incursions on their land, led to fines for Indians using their own land for wood, basket-making materials, and hunting. The Shinnecock's dissatisfaction with being dispossessed and fenced out of their gathering, hunting, and horticulture areas led to a partial concession and return of portions of the Shinnecock Hills area for limited use by them in 1703. However, even this did not satisfy the continuing land hunger of the local entrepreneurs who, realizing the Long Island Railroad was inching its way across Long Island from the 1830s, knew it would traverse Shinnecock Hills by 1870 on the way to Montauk. Another land grab, amply documented in this volume, was carried through to ensure a route for the railroad and enrich those who concocted it. Thus, in 1859, the Shinnecock were legally pushed into the small, roughly 800-acre reservation of today, Shinnecock Neck. The article by Manley, the 1879 Brainerd Photograph, and Alice Thompson Phillips' birth at Canoe Place in 1890 indicate that the Shinnecock did not all move to the reservation in 1859. The pattern of loss of land by Indians on Long Island paralleled that in New England, where Indian groups were pushed onto reservations as their land was taken, where state-appointed guardians sold remaining reservation land, where tribal lands were individually allotted and subsequently lost to land speculators. Other approaches were leasing reservation lands to settlers at uneconomically sound rates, or taking their land and putting the Indians in tenements near towns to more easily integrate them into local society, usually as an impoverished subgroup. While the reservation of the Puspatuck on Mastic Neck, on land granted to them by Tangier Smith in 1700, may be the first reservation in New York State. The Shinnecock interacted with the settling Europeans even earlier, in 1640. At that point, the Shinnecock sold some of their lands to the colonists, but this action and the subsequent rearrangement of boundaries and rights in 1703 did not seem to fix them within rigid boundaries. Howell, in 1698, found the heathen so scattered to and fro as to be impossible to count, and Horton, in the early 1740s, found them still moving back and forth from Quogue to the current reservation site at Shinnecock Neck, and another group at Sabonek, the site of Harrington's excavation in 1900. The 1836-44 Smith map shows triangles, Wigwam symbols west of Canoe Place, indicating the Shinnecock presence there at that time. The 1879 Brainerd photograph of Indian huts at Canoe Place 
Crows continued Shinnecock residence, as does the 1890 birth of Alice Thompson Phillips at Canoe Place. The West Woods, owned by the Shinnecock, are shown on the 1916 Belcher Hyde and 1929 Dolph Stewart maps. The conflict over land ownership of another parcel at Canoe Place is discussed in the Manly article. The triangle of land that became the art village for William Merritt Chase's Shinnecock Hills Art School also seems to have melted away from reservation property to private ownership in the early 1900s. The Great Cove Real Estate Company case of the 1950s was merely the latest of a long series of attempts to take Shinnecock land. We are indebted to Harriet C.B. Gums of the reservation for a personal view of the landmark case. Strong's study of selected early East End whaling contracts demonstrates the iniquity of Long Island Indian whaling and the crucial role the Indians played in introducing South Fork settlers to their first major source of economic wealth. Some of the colonists instructed the mariners of New England ports. Thus, Long Islanders played a germinal role in the history of American whaling in the early colonial period as well as during the 19th century. Shinnecock Indians comprised the whole crew of the ship Panama out of Sag Harbor in 18... unknown, were commonly first mates on whaling ships, and sometimes the captain. The harpooner was almost always an Indian, usually a Shinnecock, due to their uncommon skill. Far from awarding this exceptional service and expertise, the colonial whaling entrepreneurs created what was probably the first monopoly in the new colony. All Indians must be paid the same, regardless of performance. The gathering together of all colonial lands, land records relating to the Shinnecock, has been a Herculean task, ably performed by John Strong. He has done as well for the whaling contracts. Since not all of these gathered could be included in this volume, a documentary supplement to the volume will be available. No one should have to invent the wheel again. This compilation of original source material provides years of research potential. The evolution of Shinnecock culture. Culture is one of those familiar words used regularly by people in a wide variety of contexts. For the anthropologist, however, culture is defined as a pattern of activities, beliefs, and material artifacts common to a particular group of people. A group of people do not lose their culture. It may change, but it is never lost. Culture, by this definition, has nothing at all to do with physical appearance. So it is with the Shinnecock people. Their culture has undergone changes and their people have absorbed other genetic heritages, yet the culture retains its essential character. Unfortunately, the term is not always used carefully outside of textbooks. 
the English colonists viewed Indian culture as inferior and attempted to destroy it as quickly as they could. There is an ironic twist to this theme here on Long Island. During the 17th century, the uncivilized aspects of Indian culture were used as a justification for taking away Indian land. The colonists argued that because the Indians had no intention of making the land productive through application of agriculture and technology, they had forfeited their title. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the rationale was reversed. From the middle of the 19th century onward, the Shinnecock were threatened with the assertion that they had lost their culture and had therefore weakened their claim to their ancestral lands. The disappearance of the Indian race is a recurring theme in local histories. Gabriel Furman, in his Antiquities of Long Island, announced that nature itself, in the form of disease, was wiping away the Indians to make way for the more dynamic white race. He further asserted the physical assimilation of Indians with whites was impossible because the mixture of Indian and white blood scarcely ever lasts beyond the second generation, but gradually wastes away, so that it is a common remark that the half-breeds soon run out. This blatantly racist statement was repeated without critical comment by James Truslow Adams in his Memorials of Old Bridge Hampton. The Indians, said Adams, seemed to be unable to assimilate the white man's civilization, just as physically the two races cannot mix, the union proving sterile, I understand, beyond the second generation. These scholars made no attempt to rise above the prejudices of their time, as they uncritically repeated local folklore. Small wonder that the Shinnecock remains today aloof and suspicious of professional scholars who approach them. Culture and blood were blended into one concept by 19th century writers, in spite of the fact that blood has nothing to do with either appearance or culture. One observer after another proclaimed the epitaph of the last pure-blooded Shinnecock, when Mary Wakas died in 1867 at the age of 100, a town official recorded the following words by her name, the last full-blooded squaw and the oldest of the Shinnecocks. Southampton Town Archives, Death Records. This biological inaccuracy, with its false ring of finality, implied that the culture was also dying. The local press seized upon this theme with great enthusiasm. Presumably, the newspaper reporters were merely trying to add a bit of drama to their story, which might attract more readers. This sort of comment was repeated with greater frequency after the tragic sinking of the Circassian in December 1876. The ship ran aground offshore during a storm. When the call went out for a salvage crew to rescue the cargo, 11 men from Shinnecock agreed to take the job. One of the men, Alfonso Eliezer, left the ship before the storm engulfed the rescue operation. The ship broke apart 
while the crew was on board, casting all of them into the freezing water. None of the Shinnecock men were saved. Reporters were quick to lament the passing of the flower of the Shinnecock tribe. As recently as April 22, 1936, the Long Island Press repeated the story of the Circassian and concluded with the assertion that they were the last of the pure-blood male Indians on Long Island. There were two false premises implicit in this epitaph. One was that the death of ten men depleted the Shinnecock male population beyond recovery. We do not have the actual census figures of 1876, but judging from censuses before and after that date, there were over 200 Shinnecock living on or near the reservation. The second false premise is that these ten were the purest of the Shinnecock population. Certainly, the people who recruited the salvage crew did not take the time to select racially pure Shinnecock. They were simply a random number of men who needed work at the time. In spite of these inaccuracy, the myth of the last pure blood was recited again and again in the media. In 1909, an Albany newspaper carried the report of a state health officer who had investigated a tuberculosis epidemic on eastern Long Island. The doctor was so struck by the appearance of a Shinnecock man named Wickham Kafi that he sent a photograph back in his report. Mr. Kafi so closely resembled George Washington, said Dr. Huber, that the local people called him George. The Brooklyn Eagle picked up the Albany story and summarized it in their September 4th, 1909 edition. The article concluded with the following words. We were not aware before that there was a pure-blooded or full-blooded Indian on the reservation. The last of the full-bloods was lost on the wrecked steamer Circassian. Sure enough, when Wickham Cuffey died in 1915, he was anointed the last of the Shinnecocks by local historian John Murray. In 1936, when Mary Rebecca Kellis died at the age of 102, she was duly heralded as the last full-blooded Indian living on Long Island. Many more citations of this sort can easily be found. The same old phrases were printed whenever an elderly person from the reservation died. In spite of wishful thinking on the part of people who would like to see the Shinnecock disappear, the Indians and their culture are alive and well today. Historical documentation and anthropological data clearly support this conclusion. The best way to demonstrate this is to carefully examine the ancient traditions as they evolved so that we can trace their connection to current customs and practices among the Shinnecock. Origins. It must amuse the Shinnecock to see local people get excited about the 350th anniversary of Southampton coming up in 1990. Their history can be traced back more than 10,000 years to the first hunters and gatherers who found their way onto the island. These Paleo-Indian peoples left behind few signs of their passing, 
but the meager evidence is nonetheless conclusive. Evidence of their presence is limited to a small handful of uniquely formed projectile points. Distinctive flutes had been shipped away from the base, perhaps to accommodate a shaft. This style, named Clovis for the site in New Mexico, where they were first discovered among the bones of a mammoth, is generally associated with the Paleolithic period. Although it is less precise as a chronological indicator for eastern North America, Clovis points clearly indicate the presence of human occupation as early as 8000 BC. For about 2000 years or so, the point was in use among hunting and gathering bands across North America. The discovery of these points in Bridgehampton and Three Mile Harbor indicates clearly that Indian peoples were living here by 8000 BC and probably even earlier. It is of some significance that three of the fluted points found on Long Island were made from local quartzite. Walter Saxon, in his study of Long Island fluted points, concluded that the Paleo-Indian utilized the island long enough to experiment with and adopt, to some degree, the local materials, and that possibly there was a real, however small, Paleo-Indian occupation on Long Island. Unfortunately, we know very little about these early people. None of the points were found by modern archaeologists in a supervised dig. We can assume with some assurance that these bands lived like others who shared the Clovis culture in North America. Their toolkit would have included gravers, knives, scrapers, drills, and choppers. Little can be discerned about the social structure of these peoples from the sparse database. The general assumption is that they lived in small bands of 25 to 50 people who shared a kinship connection. The size of the community was probably determined by the number of young men necessary for an effective hunting team. In his review of New England archaeology, Dean Snow developed an imaginative model for Paleo-Indian communities based on archaeological data and ethnographic information from contemporary hunter-gatherer communities. He suggests that there may have been a three-tiered social structure, the nuclear family, the band, and the multi-band congregation. The vital center, of course, was the family. Bands were likely to be composed of families who had a kinship connection. Members of the band marry outside their own band, exogamous marriage pattern, establishing avenues of kinship with neighboring bands. It is through these ties that temporary multi-band congregations are organized for specific functions, such as seasonal hunting parties, religious celebrations, and trade. We have no way of determining how accurate Snow's model is for the Paleolithic period on Long Island, but it is a fairly accurate description of the Long Island Indians when the whites arrived in the 17th century.
recent discovery of Clovis burials in Montana gives us some tantalizing clues about Paleo-Indian religion. Two individuals were buried with grave offerings, which included a six-inch Clovis point and oval stones. The bodies and the grave goods had been sprinkled liberally with powdered red ochre. This powder is believed to have been a powerful symbol representing the vital lifeblood of man. The red ochre ceremonial became a fixed part of Eastern North American death ritual during the Archaic period. The Montana burials demonstrate that the practice actually originated during the Paleo-Indian period. It may well be that this ancient custom was carried into the New World across the Bering Straits. There is considerable evidence of its use in Old World Paleolithic burials. We have no Paleo-Indian burials on Long Island, but the presence of red ochre in the archaic burials here strongly suggests that the custom may have its roots in Paleo-Indian cultures. With the gradual melting of the glaciers, a number of significant ecological changes occurred throughout the Northeast, which were in process until around 3000 BC. Although there is some debate about specific environmental changes, it seems that the warming climate encouraged the northward spread of deciduous trees bearing a bountiful variety of protein-rich nuts, such as black walnut, pignut, butternut, and chestnut. The forests also provided a supply of fruits and seeds, which soon became a regular part of the Indian diet. These changes in climate are often related to changes in culture, although the relationship is not always clearly evident. The Archaic Period at Shinnecock No archaeological site dating back to this early time has been examined on Shinnecock land, but archaic projectile points were found underneath a late woodland site located near the reservation. We do have evidence of a settlement about 15 miles away at Shoreham Wading River as early as 2595 BC. Village life at Shinnecock was undoubtedly very similar to the pattern revealed in the Shoreham Wading River excavation. This village had been strategically located during, near the mouth of Wading River where it could draw food resources from the freshwater stream and Long Island Sound. The sheltered location which protected the villagers from the cold north and the west winds led William Ritchie to conclude that it must have been a winter camp. Ritchie, who excavated the site in 1955-1956, was convinced that these early people migrated short distances on a seasonal round establishing both winter and summer camps. Some 20 years later, the site at Shoreham Wading River was excavated again, this time by Ronald Wyatt for the Nassau County Museum. Ritchie had suspected that the site was occupied as early as 2500 BC, but he lacked conclusive data. Wyatt found the evidence he was looking for in the lowest layer, layer 3, of his excavation. A scallop valve found in the large pit used for shellfish baking 
produced a radiocarbon date of 2595 BC. Here was clear evidence that ancient peoples were harvesting and cooking bay scallops during archaic times on the eastern end of Long Island. Wyatt's excavation had even more to tell us about the life of these early villagers. They had developed a fishing technology well suited to the shallow tidal bays and freshwater streams. Net sinkers indicated the use of fish nets to harvest a reliable food supply from areas directly adjacent to the village. Scrapers, drills, bone and antler tools indicate that deer were a regular source of food, clothing, and utensils. Our image of life here during the 3rd millennium BC has recently been augmented by the works of Gwyn. She notes that shellfish were well established in Long Island waters by 3000 BC. Oysters, bay scallops, quahogs, soft-shelled clams, periwinkle, and channeled whelk provided a rich source of protein, which could be harvested even more readily than deer or wild turkey. The ease of harvest appears to have led very early to an increased dependence on shellfish for protein. The bays, of course, were full of sea sturgeon, rockfish, bluefish, flounder, shad, and striped bass. In the forests behind the village and along the beach, a wide variety of berries, nuts, and seeds rounded out their diet. This environment was undoubtedly a factor which induced the first Paleo-Indian hunter to settle down on Long Island. The importance of maritime technology for food production was reinforced by recent excavations a few miles from Shoreham Wading River at Mount Sinai Harbor. Edward Johanman, one of several archaeologists from the State University at Stony Brook who has worked on the site, reported finding two deerbone harpoons, sturgeon plates, and a salt in an archaic midden. The presence of the salt, which could have been used in the production of dugout canoes, along with the harpoons and sturgeon plates, clearly suggests the existence of a fishing technology capable of exploiting the bay, bays and shore waters. The shell midden at Wading River had another more exotic story to tell about ancient culture. Buried in the shell midden near a concentration of fire-cracked rocks was a dog. The skeleton had been disturbed by rodents, but it was clearly a burial and not the random discarded bones of an animal consumed for food. Although it is impossible to determine the symbolic meaning intended here, it seems likely that this is a very early expression of dog ceremonialism. This practice, which involved the burial of a dog near a hearth, became widespread during the centuries prior to the arrival of the Europeans. The fuller implication of this ritual will be discussed later in this chapter. Although the recent studies of settlement patterns on Long Island have made an enormous contribution to our understanding of Long Island prehistory, we still know very little about the origin and early development of village life. 
Cheshi argued in her dissertation and later in a journal article that coastal Algonquian peoples did not establish permanent villages until the arrival of the Europeans. She began with the assumption that people would not establish permanent settlements until they had become dependent upon cultivated crops. Gwyn challenged this assumption and concluded on the basis of her research at the Mount Sinai Harbor site that hunting and gathering groups do in fact establish year-round villages in areas where there exists an abundance of food. Gwyn noted that there are many examples of historic and prehistoric hunters and gatherers who established permanent settlements. The Chumash in California are a sedentary hunting and gathering culture who disdained agriculture in part because they had successfully mastered their environment. The model of forest efficiency developed by Joseph Caldwell was based on the archaeological evidence of fairly extensive year-round villages in Illinois long before the introduction of maize horticulture. Many highly complex cultures flourished in the eastern woodlands long before they developed horticulture. The peoples who constructed the huge mound complex at Poverty Point in Louisiana during the late Archaic period were never dependent upon horticulture, nor were the Adena in Ohio. Gwen strengthened her argument by demonstrating that a steady food supply was available the year-round at several sites. The nature of the data, however, makes it impossible to settle the question easily. Certainly, Gwyn has demonstrated that people will settle in permanently when the food resources are adequate year-round, but such conditions are not uniformly present all over the island, nor through all time periods. There is ethnohistoric evidence that at least some of the ancient peoples did move around. The early records of explorers and settlers mention movements of people from one village site to another on a seasonal schedule. Gretchen Gwynn's work at Mount Sinai Harbor revealed another fascinating dimension of archaic culture. She found evidence that these villagers had a system for noting the cycles of the moon. Shell and bone artifacts of the site bore incised lines, which appeared to be lunar notations marking the changing of the seasons. If this is borne out by corroborative data from other eastern archaic sites, it will bring significant revisions in the conventional interpretations of late archaic culture. Changes in the moon's cycles would certainly be of great interest to maritime peoples whose livelihood came from the tidal waters. Gwen's interpretation is also supported to some degree by the early written accounts by European explorers. Several observers commented on a near obsession which the local Indians had with sky watching. All the natives pay particular attention to the sun, the moon, and the stars, as they are of great interest to them, as to us, having like summer and winter. The first moon following that at the end of February 
is great, greatly honored by them. They watch it with great devotion, and when it rises, they compliment it with a festival. There are several other such references which describe a precise knowledge of lunar movements and a nomenclature for the stars and constellations. Wassenaer notes in a later section that it was the woman who were the more experienced stargazers, and that there is scarcely one of them who can name all the stars. Their rising, setting is as well known to them as to us, and they name them by other names. Another interesting aspect of Long Island Indian culture was revealed by a site located to the east of Shinnecock, on lands inhabited by the ancestors of the Montauk during the closing centuries of the Archaic Period. William Ritchie, 1965, excavated the site after it had been badly disturbed by an amateur excavator who had found two human cremations. These burials were embedded in red ochre and honored with grave offerings, which included a bird bone flute, shell beads, and eight projectile points. In spite of the disturbance and the absence of systematic notes, Ritchie was able to salvage some useful information. He managed to draw some highly qualified conclusions about the cultural sequences represented in the site. The projectile points near the burials closely resembled those found at the Snook Hill site in Saratoga County, New York, which has been dated between 1500 and 1400 BC. Orient Culture at Shinnecock, Transitional Period On the eastern end of Long Island, several important sites have been excavated over the past five decades, which date to around 1000 BC. Roy Latham, a tireless amateur archaeologist from the North Fork of eastern Long Island, excavated two hilltop burial sites near Orient Point in 1935. The sites revealed distinctive burial rituals unlike any that had been found at that time on Long Island. The material remains here included steatite vessels, large deposits of red ochre, and a finely crafted slim projectile point with a bifurcated fishtail base. The first mortuary Latham excavated included 25 pits ranging from 3 to 5 feet in depth. On the floors of these pits were fragments of steatite vessels, quartzite projectile points, perforators, smoothed pieces of hematite, gorgets, paint stones, and fire-making sticks. The second site, a few hundred yards away in Browns Hills overlooking the Sound, consisted of one huge oval pit about 20 feet wide and 30 feet long with several hearths on the floor at either end. These hearths contained charcoal and fragments of cremated human bones. Latham became convinced that the tops of low hills were purposely selected as sacred places for burials. 
Two years later, he selected a site in the Shinnecock Hills a few miles west of Southampton Village. His attention was drawn to one hill in particular because it stood a bit higher than all the others. This sand and gravel elevation, known locally as Sugarloaf Hill, stands 130 feet above sea level and commands a spectacular view of Shinnecock Bay to the south and Beconic Bay to the north. Facing westward, one looks out over a series of adjacent hills running to the modern canal, which was cut through at the narrow neck where the Indians traditionally portaged their canoes between Peconic and Shinnecock Bays. To the east, the land slopes down in a relatively flat, open plain where the current Shinnecock Reservation and village are located. The physical location alone recommended the spot to a knowledgeable observer. There seems to be an urge in man to seek out, or even to construct, high places for the more sacred rituals. The pyramids of the Egyptians and the ziggurats of the Sumerians may be more spectacular than these small hilltop mortuaries, but the cosmological concept is quite similar. Latham's insights paid off handsomely. He discovered an oval burial pit measuring about 30 feet in length and about 20 feet at its widest part. The floor of the pit was nearly seven feet below ground level. Unfortunately, Latham, who was a self-educated archeologist, never published a full description of the excavation. All we have is a brief article written some 16 years later and his field notes. Latham's notes, although inadequate by today's standards, were as detailed as could be expected for the 1930s. He recognized immediately that the Sugarloaf site was related to the burials at Orient Point. At the north end of the large pit and in the center, he found deposits of the sacred red ochre. Scattered around the ochre concentrations, were small crematory hearths filled with bits of calcinated bone. Caches of grave goods, which included fragments of steatite pots, fish tile projectile points, salts, and paint stones, were closely associated with these hearths. Two smaller pits were found near the large mortuary. The largest was 11 feet by 6 feet and also went down to a depth of 7 feet. Here Latham found more red ochre and artifacts, which included the large fragments of at least four steatite vessels. The dim outlines of an ancient mortuary cult were slowly beginning to take shape. Latham had no way of knowing how important his discoveries were to become in the next few decades. He did realize that nothing like this had ever been found on Long Island and continued to look for similar physical locations. The next one he found was back on the North Fork, 20 miles west of the Orient Point sites. Here at Jamesport, on another small sandy knoll, he excavated a fourth mortuary site. Latham discovered a large oval pit, 30 feet by 18 feet, and over eight feet in depth. The floor of the pit contained the fragments of several steatite bowls, red ochre, and clusters of projectile points. On the eastern end of the floor, there was a most unusual feature. 
Here, Latham found a circle of standing stones, about five feet in diameter. The stones, about three inches in diameter, enclosed a hearth filled with charcoal fragments, charred human bones, projectile points, paint stones, and the fragments of steatite vessels. There were several other hearths on the floor, but none were enclosed in stone. The full significance of the stone ring remains a puzzle, but the circle form is commonly found as a sacred symbol in ancient societies and is frequently associated with death rituals. The Sugarloaf site revealed another important insight into the prehistory of Long Island, which has implications for today. Near the surface, as Latham dug down, he unearthed a clay vessel which was an exact replica of the soapstone pots lower down on the floor of the burial pit. Here is clear evidence of cultural continuity from pre-ceramic to ceramic producing peoples. The ceramics could not have been placed there by a new migration into the area. The transition from steatite vessels to ceramic pots was made by the descendants of steatite craftsmen who replicated earlier vessels with new materials. By this time, Latham's work had come to the attention of New York State archaeologist William Rishi. He visited the sites and studied the artifacts from each excavation. He noted that all of these sites contained significant amounts of steatite and fishtail, fishtail projectile points. Ritchie identified and gave an appropriate label to the Orient focus. The term focus was part of a methodological system developed by archaeologists in the 1930s to describe a grouping of sites which shared a significant number of traits. If the traits begin to show up in more widely dispersed geographic centers, the foci are grouped into a broader classification called a phase. Ritchie discussed the Orient sites in a section of his paper, Pre-Iroquoian Occupation of New York. At the time, he was uncertain about whether the Orient burials represented a focus or a phase because the database was so meager. He was aware, however, that characteristic fishtail projectile points had been found in significant numbers all over Long Island by amateur excavators. Ritchie was puzzled by the absence of habitation sites in association with the mortuary pits. He concluded that Indian peoples from New England brought their dead here for burial. The presence of so much steatite in the graves led him to this interpretation. Most of this material appears to have come from quarries in Connecticut and Rhode Island, and the Orient vessels are quite similar to those crafted across the Sound. It is certainly a plausible conclusion, but, as Ritchie was later to discover, what is plausible is not always true. Six years later, in 1950, Carlisle Smith reviewed Ritchie's conclusion. Smith's Archaeology of Coastal New York remains one of the more important studies of Long Island archaeology. Smith also noted the failure to document any habitation sites on the eastern end of Long Island. He accepted Ritchie's reasoning that people were carried here from a great distance for burial, 
but disagreed sharply about the homeland. Smith was convinced that the ancient funeral processions had come from western Long Island near North Beach and Matinecock Point. During the fall of 1953, Ritchie returned to Long Island again, where he directed an excavation at Jamesport, expending the area explored a decade earlier by Roy Latham. Locating the boundaries of Latham's excavation, he probed further into it, uncovering two more grave offerings. One was associated with a small hearth containing charcoal and the charred remains of deer and fowl. These, he suggested, may have been part of a food sacrifice or a ceremonial feast of some kind. The offering itself included five steatite pots, which appeared to have been ceremonially broken or killed. Seven orient fishtail points, a fire kit, and a grooved banner stone. The second cache of grave goods was found about five feet from the first and nearly two feet deeper. Here he unearthed red ochre, a gorget, steatite fragments, and a projectile point lying near another hearth. Scattered randomly through the pit fill were many projectile points, spear points, fire kits, hammer stones, and a few ceramic sherds. The pottery here was tempered with coarse grit and decorated on the exterior with cord impressions. These cord impressions were probably made with a cord-wrapped paddle pressed into the clay surface prior to firing. Richie noted that the pottery was very similar to vignette one where the earliest ceramics yet found in the northeastern United States. Vignette one where originally excavated by Ritchie, has been radiocarbon dated at about 1000 BC. Ritchie had returned to Long Island because he was convinced that the Orient burials were of much greater significance than either he or Latham had realized in 1940. In 1951, Ritchie found at Lake Muscalonge near the St. Lawrence River a number of stone-lined crematory hearths scattered near the surface on ridges among small hills. He was particularly intrigued by a site on the top of a small sandy knoll, located on a ridge with a panoramic view of the St. Lawrence. Here he found a concentration of cremated human bones mixed with charcoal granules and particles of ground red okra. Some of the bones had a reddish tinge suggesting to Ritchie that the red ochre had come into contact with them during the burial process. The process must have involved cremation in the stone hearths, for there was no evidence of fire in the burial pit. The following year, Ritchie excavated a site near Red Lake, a few miles from the Muscalonge Lake excavation, another ridge with small sandy hills with oval pit graves, large quantities of red ochre and grave goods. This included secular equipment, projectile points, drills, fire kits, scraping tools, adzes, pottery, and such personal ornaments as gorgets and beads, 
and ritualistic equipment, such as thin triangular-shaped blades, which showed no evidence of use at all. They appear to have been finely crafted as grave goods for use in the spirit world. All were made from high-quality Onondaga flint. Similar caches of blades and points crafted exclusively for burial offerings are common in prehistoric sites in the Northeast. The practice also has an impressive time depth, running from the early archaic to the arrival of the early settlers. It may, of course, be older, but we have yet to find any Paleo-Indian burial sites in the Northeast. Ritchie added deposits of galena, red ochre, and quartz crystals to this category. Red ochre, the metaphor for lifeblood, is, as we have mentioned above, commonly found in prehistoric burials all over the world. The crystals may have been related to divination. Such objects were being used by the Cherokee shamans when Europeans first arrived in the New World. By the end of 1953, Ritchie felt he had enough information to demonstrate the existence of a religious system which was shared by Indian peoples from the Great Lakes to Long Island. He described it as a burial cult and compiled a compendium of general characteristics. The following summary is based on Ritchie's list and his trait tables. Burials and sandy knolls located on high ground overlooking bodies of water. A preference for eastern slopes as burial sites. Mortuary sites which serve several habitation sites located some distance away. Cremation of bundled burials. A precise mortuary program involving the preparation of the body in charnel houses located perhaps in the villages. Bones cleaned, cremated, wrapped in bundles, and carried to the mortuary site. Some individuals treated differently from others, indicating perhaps a status hierarchy in the society. A final inhumation ceremony, which often included a feast or the sacrifice of animals in some form held at graveside. Pit tombs often lined with bark or animal skin robes. A belief in the sacredness of red ochre, perhaps as a symbol of lifeblood. A belief that offerings of tools, ornaments, and weapons must be made. The presence of dog bones, occasionally mixed with human bone, indicating a ritual marking a special relationship between man and dog. A belief that fire was a vital sacrament for the deceased. This list of characteristics cannot do justice to the beliefs and rituals they suggest. We will probably never fully comprehend or appreciate the richer textures of the ancient religion. One point, however, was quite clear. The burial sites on eastern Long Island were an expression of a universal human urge to conquer death. Political structure. 
The level of social complexity appears to have changed very little over the centuries of Long Island prehistory. Descriptions of Indian leadership recorded by the early settlers conform in most respects to the interpretations which archaeologists have drawn from the meager data available. Taken together, the two sources provide us with enough information to reconstruct the outlines of these elusive ancient cultures. Anthropologists have developed a nomenclature for levels of social complexity based primarily on population and social structure. The smallest political unit is the band, followed in order of increasing size and complexity by the tribe, the chiefdom, and the modern state. The evidence on Long Island strongly suggests that the peoples here were living in small bands from archaic times up to the invasion by the Europeans. The general characteristics which are common to bands have been outlined in a number of studies. The band is essentially an egalitarian social group in which material goods are shared in common with all members. They cooperate in the production and processing of food, which is then distributed to everyone. In this regard, the Indian communities were far closer to the Christian ideal than any of the Europeans who sought to convert them. The band is united by a network of kinship ties, which link together several extended family units. The numbers may range from 50 to 100, depending upon the environmental setting and the particular history of the group. The Shinnecock probably lived in four or five villages scattered from the land west of Canoe Place to the eastern border of Montauk Islands, Montauk Lands. The decision-making process was democratic, almost to the point of anarchy. Generally, a village headman would be looked to for guidance because he had demonstrated his capacity for sound judgment and common sense. There are no hereditary titles. A man loses or keeps his leadership status in the group by virtue of merit alone. In most cases, a man recognized for his skills as a hunter or an orator would be accorded leadership status by acclamation. The leadership, therefore, is situational. The man best able to deal effectively with a crisis or a particular challenge would become the acknowledged leader for the duration of the situation. The best hunter led the hunting party. The best fisherman led the fishing expedition. The best orator represented the group in its diplomatic relations with other bands. This rather amorphous political institution posed frustrating problems to the Europeans when they attempted to impose a system of treaties and contracts on the Shinnecock. These European legal concepts presumed a hierarchical political structure which did not exist among the Long Island bands. There was no single chief who held authority to sign away the land rights. The earliest accounts by Dutch observers frequently commented on the absence of real authority vested in the sachem by his community. The land, of course, was not viewed by the Indians as a commodity which could be bought and sold. 
It was a sacred part of nature to be used for the common benefit of the community. The Europeans, in frustration, simply went ahead with a charade of treaty signing to keep their own books straight and ignored the confusion of the Indians. The important point for our discussion here is that the deed signing process revealed insights into Shinnecock political institutions. The first treaty signed between Indians and whites on eastern Long Island was at Southampton in 1640. The names of 12 Indians appear on this deed. Although one local historian asserts that a Shinnecock named Noandona was Saken at the time, his name does not appear on the deed. That same year, however, Noandona is believed to have signed the Southhold Town deed as the sole representative for all the Shinnecock people. The original has been lost, but Marion Fisher Ailes in her studies of these early deeds mentions local folklore asserting that the four Sakims of Long Island signed the deed. In 1648, the deed to East Hampton was also signed by four Sakims. The clear indication implication of the Southhold deed is that each of the four Sakims had the authority to speak for all of the people living in a designated geographic area. The difference between these deeds and the one signed in 1640 is of considerable significance. It may be that the colonists, frustrated with the egalitarian nature of the local bands, imposed the fiction of a tribal structure which would facilitate the process of land alienation. Each geographic area was neatly tied to one Indian leader who was invested with the authority to sell off the tribal lands. Noandona was to speak for the Shinnecock, Wyandanche for the Montauk, who occupied the land from the western border of the Shinnecock lands to Montauk Point, Mimoweta for the Korchog Indians living on the North Fork from Riverhead to Orient Point, and Pogatukut for the Manhasset Indians on Shelter Island. Within two decades, Wyandanche alone was signing deeds for land as far away as Smithtown. These deeds may tell us more about the strategies of the whites to legitimize the seizure of Indian lands than they do about the actual powers of an Indian leader. As Francis Jennings has pointed out in The Invasion of America, the deed game was played ruthlessly by the English colonists. Jennings states that one favorite strategy practiced through New England at this time was to recognize the claim of a corrupt Indian who was not the legitimate landlord and then buy the land from him. The 1640 Southampton deed more accurate more accurately reflects the nature of band-level social systems. This observation is relevant only in terms of our concerns here about the nature of Shinnecock leadership, and in no way should be used to defend the legal or moral aspects of the document. The accounts of leadership and decision-making among the Montauk, on the other hand, tell us much more than the deeds signed by Wyandanche. The Narragansetts came to eastern Long Island in 1642 with a plot to attack the English settlements. They ignored Wyandanche 
and talked with other Montauk elders. These elders may have been village headmen. They never reported the matter to Wyandanch at all, and had full support from the bands on Shelter Island. Wyandanch reported the plot and was rewarded with an increasing amount of support from the English. This was the source of his authority, not local tradition. The inability of village headmen in small bands to command obedience from the more independent-minded among the group is a universal characteristic of egalitarian political systems. Historically, the first compulsion of the invading colonists was to put upon these peoples a European political hierarchy and a clearly defined set of geographic boundary lines. The next step, of course, was to get these designated leaders to sign away portions of the territory under their authority. Further research may demonstrate that the 13 tribes of Long Island are no more than a fiction contrived by the settlers to dispossess the Indian bands from their lands through a process which was easily managed and more in harmony with English concepts of contract and property. The relationship between colonizing people and highly stratified social systems and band-level societies has been studied by Morton Freed in his research on the evolution of social complexity. He argues that invading colonial powers will seek to impose a political structure on local indigenous people. Put more concretely, this means that government-appointed chiefs are respected only in certain limited situations, and that the main weight of social control continues to rest upon traditional authorities and institutions, which may not even be recognized by the ruling power. This appears to have been the pattern on Long Island. The village headmen who truly spoke for their people were simply ignored by the colonists until there was a confrontation. At that point, the headmen were bullied or bought off with minor concessions, new deeds, liquor, or cash. The settlers imposed a leadership system on the Indians, which served as a convenient mechanism for political control and economic exploitation. In 1663, for example, the colonists forced the Shinnecock to pay homage to Kwashawam, the successor to Wyandanch, and to acknowledge a clearly defined line of succession after her death. In less than three years, Kwashawam and her successors were totally ignored by both the Shinnecock and the Southampton officials. These developments will be discussed in more detail in How the Land Was Lost. By 1670, the absence of a specific authority figure among the Shinnecock prompted the local whites to organize the nomination and election of a Sakem. One can imagine the confusion this must have caused among a people who were accustomed to making important decisions by consensus. Nevertheless, they complied, electing Kwakwashog, an Indian who had played a prominent role in several treaty negotiations. Governor Lovelace quickly confirmed his election and appointed an Indian named Kabat 
as constable to help the Sakem maintain good order among the Shinnecock. The sham of self-government was exposed less than three years later, when Kabat was stripped of his office and accused, along with other Shinnecocks, of breaking windows in town and other mischievous acts. Such pranks undoubtedly reflected a continuing undercurrent of resentment against the settlers. The town officials threatened to have them sent to New York in chains unless they reformed. The local town constable, who appears to have taken over Calvert's duties, was told to see that the Indians keep good order. social institution which is most often commented on by early European observers is religion. There are two obvious reasons for this. In the first place, the shamanistic rituals were dramatic and quite unusual for Europeans. This alone was bound to attract considerable comment. A second reason was to demonstrate to the reader how Christianity was superior to those heathenish practices. The choice of words reveals the prejudices of these observers. The rituals are frequently dismissed as devil worship and the sacred chants of the Sakyans as the hooting and hollering of lunatics. This delight in ridiculing aboriginal religions was based in part on a need to justify the exploitation of the Indians by asserting that their culture had no real value. Some accounts went so far as to assert that the Indians actually had no religion. The Dutch observer Delayet stated pompously, they have no sense of religion, no worship of God. They indeed pay homage to the devil, but not so solemnly, nor with such ceremonies as the Africans do. In spite of the prejudices, these reports provide invaluable clues if one filters out the ethnocentric nonsense. To begin with, the assertion that the Indians had no religion is absurd. Modern anthropologists define religion as a belief in spiritual beings or forces which is expressed in ritual. In contemporary Aboriginal communities isolated from contact with highly developed industrial cultures, anthropologists report that religion permeates nearly every aspect of the daily routine. It was very much like this among the prehistoric peoples in North America. Perhaps the best way to approach our discussion of Shinnecock religion is to look at the basic functions of religion and to see what insights we can derive from the written records. Religion at all levels of social complexity fulfills the following human needs. It calms anxieties about death, the afterlife, and the risks of accidental injury in the everyday routine. It serves to reinforce a social bond between the members of the group. It celebrates such crucial rites of passage as birth, puberty, marriage, and death. 
It offers an explanation about human origins and the origins of the universe. And it offers the hope of a cure to those who are sick, in body or in spirit. The role of the shaman is, of course, central to all of these functions. He is the religious specialist who must supervise all of these tasks. His presence was indicated in the data from the excavations of Sugarloaf Hill. Here we saw evidence of the shaman's hand in the supervision of the death cult rituals. The historic records further illuminate the role of this shadowy figure. The nature of shamanism varies from area to area reflecting local customs. Generally, a shaman is accorded status in a band after he has a dream or experiences a trance in which he is called to serve his people. Occasionally, shamans inherit the office from their fathers, but this is rare in band-level cultures, where status is given most on the basis of merit. The initial induction procedures for shamans of Indian bands on Long Island are hinted at by Nicholas Wassenaer, one of the early Dutch settlers. The holy men were chosen at the age of 12, and elevated to office when he comes of age. This description clearly suggests that the initial identification or calling is followed by a period of apprenticeship prior to assuming the responsibilities of the shaman. This brief comment conforms to the analysis of shamanism by Mircea Eliade in his classic study, The Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. The transfer dream was only the first stage in the process of becoming a shaman. The next stage was a period of apprenticeship, during which the candidate learned the shamanistic lore, the sacred chants, and the herbal remedies for sickness. The shamans who talked to Samson Okum told him that they got their powers from dreams or night visions. David Gardiner also mentioned that the Montauk shamans talked with gods and devils in their dreams. These visions, according to another report, often took the form of animals who spoke to the shaman. Primitive hunters regard animals as similar to men but endowed with supernatural powers. They believe that a man can change into an animal and vice versa, that the souls of the dead can enter animals. Finally, that mysterious relations exist between a certain man and a certain animal. Unfortunately, we have very little evidence beyond this about shamans who had a special relationship to a particular animal. There is, however, considerable evidence in other areas of prehistoric North America, suggesting deer, bear, and wolf shamanism. Headdresses from the skull of those animals frequently appear in the excavations with human burials. Harrington found a wolf skull at Port Washington, which may reflect wolf shamanism there. Gardiner's account of a ceremony involving the ritual sacrifice of the tail and fins of a whale suggests that the possibility of a special relationship between the Shinnecock shamans and the whale may have been celebrated here. It is interesting to note in this regard an observation made by Malinowski in his study of the Trobriand Island maritime culture. He 
reported that the more elaborate rituals were associated with the dangerous deep water fishing expeditions, whereas very little attention was paid to the safer, more routine fishing in the calm lagoons. The rituals described by Gardiner may have been an expression of a similar concern. Let us now examine the role of the shaman in carrying out the general functions of religion. The primacy of death rituals remained unchanged. The particular rituals, however, underwent some modifications once again. There are several references to a radical new burial program practiced by the bands on western Long Island. The deceased lay in state for several days tended by the close relatives. Following this period, a small wooden shelter was constructed around the body, which was seated upright amongst such grave offerings as kettles, a gun, and eating utensils. The tomb was next covered over with earth and stone and surrounded by a wooden fence. No graves of this sort have been excavated on the east end, but they may exist in areas adjacent to the village middens. The accounts written by Samson Oakham and the excavations of a Montauk cemetery in 1917 by Foster Sayville are the only sources of information available at present to help us understand the burial customs practiced in the 17th century. According to Oakham, the body of the deceased was washed, dressed, and painted with the sacred colors. Female kin blackened their faces for these ceremonies and often continued this ritual for a full year. Although Oakham does not mention it, the body probably lay in state for several days, as was the case in the Western Long Island funerary rituals. Following these rituals, which were probably performed in the wigwam at the deathbed, the body was carried in a solemn procession to the grave. Oakham mentions that lamentations were chanted by the whole company as they marched. This practice of holding a funerary procession may well have its roots in the Orient burial ceremony which involved the movement of the dead from the cremation site to the sacred hilltop mortuary. Daniel Denton relates a legend which he attributes to the Montauk. A funeral procession for one of the Montauk Sakans, who died at Shinnecock, was carried by a huge group of mourners from Shinnecock land to a burial ground near Amagansett. Ailes recounts the same legend, but in her version it is Pogat Tekut, who died on Shelter Island and was carried to the same burial ground. Similar processions are still a vital part of funerary ritual on the Shinnecock Reservation. The rituals associated with death continue today to be as important to the Shinnecock community as they were in ancient times. The whole reservation assists with funerary preparation, although the chief burden falls upon the immediate kin. Food preparation and various household tasks are performed on a cooperative basis by women from the community. The procession itself is a very important communal ritual.
A person's place in the order of march is carefully considered. The positions in the procession are decided upon by the near kin. The place which is assigned to an individual indicates his status and position within the family. For instance, ordinarily, the eldest son would be first in line and accompany the grieving mother or father who had just lost his mate. The other children of the marriage would walk behind in order of their birth. The siblings of the deceased would be next in line, again in order of their birth, and finally aunts, uncles, and cousins in age order. Here we see another example of cultural survival from prehistoric times. The excavation of the Pantago Cemetery by Foster Saville revealed a 17th century post-contact site. The bodies were either flexed or extended. None were buried in a sitting position. The burial pits were about the same depth as those in the Sibonic mortuaries. All had been elaborately dressed in the manner described by Oakham. The ancient pattern of providing grave goods was continued here. Bodies wrapped in blankets, skins, or bark were laid to rest with beads, ceramic vessels, knives, utensils of iron, glass, copper, and pewter, and red paint. The materials had changed, but the ancient rituals were still being performed. These rituals, observed at the time of death, serve a second function as well. They unite the community reinforcing a bond of shared obligations and mutual sentiment. This important need is served to some extent by all of the communal rituals, regardless of their immediate goals. Group cohesion is reinforced whenever the community comes together for a wedding, a powwow, or even a meeting to discuss an important tribal issue. These rituals observed at the time of death serve a second function as well. They unite the community, reinforcing a bond of shared obligations and mutual sentiment. This important need is served by some extent by all of the communal rituals, regardless of their immediate goals. Group cohesion is reinforced whenever the community comes together for a wedding, a powwow, or even a meeting to discuss an important tribal issue. Elkham describes another rite of passage which may have been associated with the coming of age in ancient times. He called it a naming ceremony and noted that Indian children took on new names two or three times over. Although the reference is not clear, it seems likely that Elkham is describing a rite of passage associated with puberty. Frequently in traditional cultures, the ceremony is marked by giving the children a new name, indicating that they have abandoned the old identity and are now adults. They are reborn into the adult world. It is an occasion for great celebration in most cultures. Okun describes a happy festival marked by feasting, dancing, and the giving of gifts. Another important type of group ceremony 
which also reinforces a sense of communal bond, celebrates seasonal changes, such as the coming of spring or the end of summer. Often the fertility of women or the fecundity of the animals, fish, and plants upon which they depend for food is encouraged through chants and dances. Spirits which are believed to control such natural forces as rain, wind, fire, sun, or the moon must, pre- must be propitiated. Evening dances around a fire were led by the shaman who frequently led an acrobatic dance of considerable intensity. These frenetic performances pushed the shaman to a point of physical exhaustion and enabled him to fall into a trance. These ritually induced trances were avenues of communication with the spirit forces. In such a state, they may, as do the holy men of India, actually walk on hot coals with no sign of pain. This capacity astounded many of the Dutch and English observers. Gardiner described a rite associated with the sacrifice of the fins and tails of a whale. He claims in his description that this was a worship service to a great deity, but he believed it had little to do with the whale itself or a whale being. He concluded that the rite was practiced to drive away a mysterious evil force, while at the same time propitiating a good spirit. This sounds as if Gardiner is imposing Christian belief onto the ritual. This aspect of the rite may have been only a first stage because Gardiner does say that the evil force had to be exercised before the ceremony for the good deity could continue. When the evil spirit was supposed to be subjugated, said Gardiner, the dance and the feast continued. The nature of this feast and associated ritual was never described in his account. It is possible that a whale deity or some other spirit of deep water was being honored and asked to protect fishermen on expeditions into the more dangerous waters. These ceremonies were condemned by the colonial authorities and often prohibited by law. They were seen as a threat to the public order and an unacceptable expression of resistance to the spread of Christianity. It is ironic that whites today berate Indians for having lost their culture after having tried strenuously to suppress it for 300 years. The current expression of these communal rites includes the Labor Day powwow, which is described in another section of this volume, community meetings, and annual dinners at the reservation center. Another important function of religion is to provide an explanation for the universe and a body of folklore about the origins of the community. There are several accounts of creation myths recorded by the Dutch and shared by the Eastern tribes because the themes are common to many North American Indian peoples. According to the Dutch accounts, the Indians believed that the world was created when a god sent down his wife to a world covered with water. As she descended, a piece of dry land rose to meet her. 
The land gradually increased as the mother goddess gave birth to human beings and all the creatures of the earth. This creation legend once again asserts a close relationship between man and animals. Oakham describes a pantheon which included a major god for each of the directions of the compass. The belief in a sacred being associated with the north, east, south, and west is widespread in North America. In addition, Oakham cited spiritual forces associated with fire, wind, the sea, the day, the night, the four seasons, and the various crops. Unfortunately, Oakham had little time for what he believed were heathenish idolatry and superstition. Oakham's assertion that the Montauk believed in one great and good god called Kalun Toit and an evil god or devil figure named Mochesheshunitu may have been an attempt on his part to impose the Christian duality on the Indian cosmology. The sun, planets, and stars all held important places in Indian religious beliefs. Astronomical observations were probably an important duty of the shaman. The astronomical skills of the Indians and their ability to predict the weather drew frequent, albeit grudging, admiration from the European observers. They were described as having some knowledge of the sun, moon, and stars, many of which they even knew how to name. They are passable judges of the weather. One of the most discussed but least understood roles of shamans was their function as a healer of physical and mental ills. It is important at the outset to distinguish between two types of healing performed by the shaman. Those within the range of the shaman's diagnosis could be remedied by herbs or binding, but major illness would force the shaman to resort to magical devices such as chants, amulets, sucking tubes, or smoking rituals as well. These latter rituals, however, often had an important psychological impact because they calmed the patient, bolstered his morale, and enabled his own recuperative powers to work more effectively. A thorough understanding of medicinal plants and healing techniques was an important part of the shaman's early training. This factor has been noted with respect by European observers bent upon discrediting the Indian. Their knowledge of botanical cures exceeded that of the European doctors. It has been said that the Indian had only one book, the Book of Nature, and he knew every page by heart. Over 200 North American herbal remedies have been recognized and utilized in various forms by modern physicians. In spite of this, or perhaps because of it, the shaman was an early target of European repression. Once, the Indian was circumscribed by land purchases and colonists' military power. The next focus of attack was the shaman because he represented the core of traditional Indian values. The Long Island Indian's knowledge of herbal remedies was attested to by several observers. According to Nicholas Wassenaer, one of the earliest of the Dutch observers, 
They have abundant means with herbs and leaves or roots to administer their sick. There is scarcely an ailment they have not a remedy for. Another account spoke admiringly of the Indian ability to cure wounds and hurts. Sores and injuries by means of herbs and roots indigenous to the country which are known to them. There was even some suspicion that the shamans knew more than they were willing to tell. The Indians tell us of several medicinal herbs excellent for green or old sores, but they are sparing of their information where they find them. Many of these remedies are still a part of the Shinnegok culture today. A study of these surviving traditions, made by J.D. Carr and Carlos Huestes for the American Museum of Natural History, appears in volume four of the series. Van der Donk was convinced that the lifestyle of the Indians was also a factor in their ability to recover from sickness and injury. They can heal fresh wounds and dangerous bruises in a most wonderful manner. They also have remedies for old sores and ulcers. All their cures are made with herbs, roots, and leaves, with the powers of which they're acquainted without making any compounds. Still, it must be admitted that nature assists them greatly, for they indulge in no excesses of eating or drinking. Otherwise, they could not accomplish so much with such simple means. Another favorite remedy was the sweat lodge. A small hut was sealed with clay and heated by the introduction of hot stones from a fire outside. The patient sat in the hut and sweated until he could stand it no longer. The ritual was completed by running from the lodge and jumping into a stream or having cold water poured over him by his fellow villagers. It was the healing through magic and incantation which drew the ridicule of the Europeans. The observers failed to understand the significance of these rituals, which seemed so alien to them. A general belief widely held by traditional people is that infections and other internal disorders are caused by foreign objects or spirits in the patient's body. The shaman, through various techniques, including chanting, sucking through a tube pressed on the infected area, massaging, or blowing tobacco, convinces the patient that the evil spirit has been removed. The rituals used by the Eastern Long Island shaman were similar to those used throughout the Northeast. The evidence for this comes from an account by Samuel Taylor, a missionary who visited Shelter Island in 1659. He witnessed part of a healing ritual before interrupting it in his zeal to have the patient treated by an English doctor. Enough of the ritual was recorded, however, to allow comparison with the rites performed by the Western Long Island bands. A brief account of religious rituals among the Montauk further illustrates the widespread acceptance of similar shamanistic forms throughout Aboriginal Long Island. 
The shaman visited the patient suffering from a serious illness with his medicine kit. He laid out various amulets, feathers, bones, a sucking tube, pipe, and tobacco. The shaman would often be accompanied by the man of the village, who came to show the patient that he was not alone in his struggle to get well. The men who accompany the shaman are not simply visitors. They participate in the healing ritual. Taylor described a ceremony in which the the men beat out a rhythm with sticks, using the earth as a drum, and chanted. The crucial factor in this process is, of course, the belief on the part of the patient in the powers of the shaman. Convinced that he has a powerful force on his side to combat his illness and supported in his struggle to recover by the members of his family and his community, the patient can relax and allow his own body to repair itself. There are, of course, many diseases which will not be conquered so simply, but it should be noted that 17th century European medicine was equally ineffectual against the more potent microbes. Our discussion of Shinnecock's social institutions must include mention of the language. The vital element of a culture presents problems for ethnographers and students of any prehistoric people. The archaeological record is of no help here. We must rely on folk traditions, oral histories, and the written accounts of a few interested observers. The colonial peoples, in general, discouraged the survival of the language as a part of consciously destroying all vestiges of Indian culture. The language has not been entirely lost in spite of these efforts. The Shinnecock belonged to the Algonquian linguistic family in the same sense the French belonged to the Latin family. It appears to be very similar to the language spoken by the Mohican Picot tribes. A full review of the language question and a compilation of the surviving vocabulary are found in volume four. Conclusion. We have scarcely done full justice here to thousands of years of Shinnecock history. A framework, however, has been established which clearly links the contemporary Shinnecock community with their ancestral roots. For nearly 300 years, their culture was under calculated assault by the missionaries and the assimilationists, yet a core of ancient tradition proved resilient enough to have survived. They are still here. They remain a community governed somewhat loosely by a shifting core of leaders who supervise regular community rites of passage and intensification rituals. They still decline to become farmers. They look to the future development of an ancient maritime resource, the oyster. The modern oyster project run by their own young people is a major source of community pride, providing a modern social bond as important as the ancient cooperative fishing or hunting expedition.